0: go 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 go
1: of the Yummy Coco Show. This is a pop culture variety show for your ear holes with sketches, music, interviews, and games. I'm your host, Yummy Coco, aka Colette Prosper. I'm a TV writer and filmmaker. On this show, we talk about everything from Netflix's On the Verge starring Julie Delpy. Uh, That will be in a game with Cousin Carla. And uh, also the Hades situation It's really just fucked up and heartbreaking. Even my cat Stella, as you can hear her meowing, is just beside herself. It's just a really um, very heartbreaking situation. Uh, That will also be with Cousin Carla later on the show. Uh, But first, this week... I will chat with acclaimed author Jean Thornton about her novel *Summer Fun*. Jean was also my writing sprints teacher back in New York. Um, and we'll talk about that. She's a, an amazing, very thoughtful, um, just wonderful person, just really, really kind person. Uh, so this week I chat with her. Um, we talked earlier this month about writing and promoting a novel during the pandemic. I urge you to check out Summer Fun. It's wild. It's fun. It's at times heartbreaking. Um, it is uh, sort of inspired by the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson. And if you're familiar with the album Smile, that's one of uh, Sean's favorite albums. Uh, it's, it, it, it's not... Exactly. It's not a uh it, it's not a, a biography about that, but it's it's uh, inspired by that time period, the surf rock uh, 60s surf rock time period. So, it's really cool. I urge you to check it out. Um if you end up checking it out on Audible, listen all the way through to the acknowledgments. Um and and what you discover is that it's not easy to get a book published, uh, especially if you are of the marginalized community, if you are a, a black writer, if you are a trans writer, um, if you are a female writer, it's not it's not always easy to sell your story, um, especially with the the gatekeepers that are currently in place. Um, so. You, what you you get a kind of a taste of that in the acknowledgements you you realize it's a journey and I feel like uh Jean lays it all out there in stark detail in a way that doesn't feel intentional but but it it does anyway because you 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 see firsthand it's not it's not an easy thing anyway um Jean also acknowledges the um genre reassignment night, uh, and it's a, um, and that, that was where, um, it's, it's a, a bar night. It's a, it's a, it's a reading night, um, at this bar called the Metropolitan, um, on Metropolitan in, in Williamsburg. Um, and, and that, the genre reassignment night was a place where she read excerpts from her book. It's a Brooklyn only trans open night, um, hosted at Metropolitan Bar every Tuesday, every first Tuesday of the month. Uh, so if you're in Brooklyn, check it out. Uh, if um, if you are not in Brooklyn but want to support, um, I'm sure that there's, um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's um, some kind of Ven- Venmo or Cash App uh, to help support the night. So check that out. But first up, housekeeping. If you like the show, please rate it on Apple or leave a review. It's how you can help people to find the show. Let's kick things off uh, with a sketch. Woo, Stella, Stella meowing. Um, Let's kick off the show with a sketch called Wash Up, and it features writer, director, actor, Ashley Shine. Sketch black women are filming a sketch for the show "Whitest people who don't know you white on the set
0: and action
2: girl i am so sweaty me too Nichelle. oh my goodness what a great run we'll <sighs> need to take some serious showers after this right
1: candace oh it's so hot out um I mean, I guess, I usually just throw some water on my face after a workout to get all the, you know, all the salts out. What? You,
2: you don't shower after a run? <laughs> you
1: yeah, know. That's weird. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Like, don't you know it's not necessary to bathe every day? Um, you know, using soap every day, that, that rids the body of natural oils. Where is this coming from? Who taught you not to wash? Well, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal, Ashton Kutcher, Mila Kunis, they don't bathe every day. Even Kristen Bell and Dak Shepard, they wait until their kids stink before they get a Yeah, those
2: home. are rich, white
1: people.
2: I'm talking about oh. regular-ass black folks like you and me, okay? Wait, uh-uh. Can we stop? Um, stop, please?
0: Is there something wrong? Crew, stand by. You okay in show?
2: No, I'm afraid this is offensive.
0: Why? I, I wrote it. And I've been reading a lot of Robin DiAngelo, and uh, you know, I was trying to highlight the diversity and the values and the bathing practices within the black community.
2: I don't know. When I answered this casting call on Facebook, I didn't know it was going to be this weird.
1: I mean, it's supposed to be funny. It it mentions white people not showering. And then I like how it normalizes bathing, but still gives space for those who don't.
0: Yeah, you know, you're supposed to be the good guys here. Look, come on. Come on. We're losing light. Can we please move on?
1: But you're a white guy
2: writing about two black women and one doesn't wash. And then you mention rich white influencers. (laughs) I just. I don't feel comfortable about that. I think it's fine. But that's the thing. We don't have to see things the same way because we're black. Wait, what? We to see things the same way? We don't have to see things the same way because we're black. We, we don't have We to don't see, have to things see the things, things the way. same way. Yeah. Whoa.
0: Oh my god. What what was that flash of light? Oh, whoa.
2: It's the good witch. Michelle? Yes? You've realized the most important thing. I did?
0: Wait. She she did? did?
2: Mm. You've realized that you don't need the white man's validation. (laughs) I don't? Oh, I feel... (gasps) I feel dizzy. Oh my god, I need to sit down.
0: Hey, hey, this is sketch comedy. It's supposed to be topical and bathing is what Black Twitter is talking about right now.
1: No, no, I mean, bathing and, and not bathing, it's just not funny anymore. And to be honest, I don't think Black Twitter is, is on that right now. They're on something else.
0: You know, it wasn't just about bathing. It was actually A moment for commentary on conserving water as water becomes more scarce on a warming planet. Banish
1: him! Banish him! He's virtual signaling! Doesn't she mean virtue signaling? Ugh, whatever. Virtue signaling. Banish you, White's Comedy Director!
0: Well, whatever. You haven't seen the last of me.
1: He's gone! Thanks, Good Witch. (laughs) Talk about a wash up. (laughs) Now that's funny. Back. Awesome. So let's get into my talk with acclaimed author, Jean Thornton, who has just released Summer Fun, which has been described as an epic, singular look at fandom, creativity, longing, and trans identity. Hey, Gene. Welcome.
3: Hey, Colette. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Can you introduce yourself and 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 tell us who you are?
3: Sure. So i Um, the author of a couple of books most recently Summer Fun which just came out from Soho Press in July this year I'm a summer book appropriately
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, I also did um, my first novel is called The Dream of Dr. Bantam from OR Books 2012 Uh, The Black Emerald from Instar which we released twice in 2014 and 2017 and then in the co-editor with Tara Madison Avery of uh, the Trans Comics anthology we're still here Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the publishers of instar books and sometimes I teach at second street writers workshop as well which is where we met initially
1: yeah yeah you were you're an amazing teacher um so uh you know, yes. So, in addition to being an acclaimed author, you're also a fabulous teacher. Uh, I took your Sackett Street School course. Uh, it's called Writing Sprints, um, and so I, 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 I'm gonna ask you to describe it in a minute. But like, um, you know, it came at a time for me where like my both my parents had died, which was very like devastating, disorienting, destabilizing. And uh, they, they both died within six months of each other and I was taking care of them. And, and then also I had a small, a little one, just a lot of stuff going on all at once. Uh, and then also, you know, just trying to have a career. So like um, your class was, was really great because it, it, it's just all about free writing and just getting shit on paper and it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, it, so, so yeah, anyway can you can you talk about writing sprints like what is writing sprints
3: sure it's sort of um first of all i'm really i'm glad to see you again after this class also and yeah um, also glad to um thank you for telling me it came at like a time where it was really useful for you i'm I'm really really glad to hear that yeah it's the class is sort of designed to be um something that recognizes the fact that we're not writing under I don't know, like old school, like mm-hmm. live in the countryside with a pen, like <laughs> the entire- Emily
1: Dickinson.
3: Yeah. I just read this, this really good biography, of the writer, Robert Walser, that's, mm-hmm. who had this, a lot of the latter part of his writing career, he was writing like in an asylum, basically. Wow. <laughs> At the window only to have like dedicated time to only write a huge amount of the day. Sort of like
1: like Marquis de Sade, like Marquis de Sade being in prison and just writing like with his blood. Yeah.
3: (laughs) A little bit more benign version of that. Uh (laughs) A basic idea. Yeah, where it's like, we just don't tend to be able to cloister ourselves off, I think, in the way people in the past used to do. So I think having something and then something that allows us to think about ways to find um, creativity within these sort of interstitial moments. Yeah. Like, moment, like being able to write, like sort of when you're on the train, being able to write with this sort of like, this is sort of my world right now. Like I'm talking to you actually mid day job where I sort of have like an hour or something in the mornings to kind of get into a creative space, write and then get out of it in time for work. Yeah. So it's kind of like, that's, I think just, you know, like, if we don't want to have writing exclusively done by, like, people who live in private castles, (laughs) like, like I believe that I will go to, like, a yacht for six months at right, or whatever whatever people do, like, I think, like, having, and also just getting kind of out of your own way, being able to unblock yourself um, from ideas about what writing should be like, Mm -hmm. unblock yourself from a sense of result in some in some cases and so just sort of sit down there and write it. The whole class comes out of um, a writing group I had when I was in pretty young, like in my 20s with them. Um, my friend, uh, Bill Cheng, who also for a while was teaching uh, writing, he was the original teacher of writing sprints. Over oh, right. That's sort of based on the um, practices we did where we'd meet up to sort of do writing group things like read our work and like give notes on it to one another. Mm-hmm. But we'd start each time by doing a um, random writing prompt. It was usually drawn at that time from just something we overheard someone say. Mm-hmm. We'd be like, great, that's your writing prompt, like go with that. And we'd just all sit there together and write for like 20 minutes. And then at the end of it, read what we had done if we felt like it. And it was just like, it makes writing seem less important. It can start to seem like silly. It could start to seem in the moment. It sort of makes you make decisions very quickly Yeah, get in touch with that flow of writing that I think is like, I don't know, what's important about it in in some cases, it's like being able to get in that space where you're letting it come out of you and then thinking about how you're going to collect it and organize it later.
1: Right, yeah, I find that, like, I I get very anxious. And so I find that if if I wanna do something like, oh, I wanna write, I don't know, I wanna write a, a screenplay, I wanna write a novel, I'm, I'm thinking about that sort of like huge mountain that to climb. Yeah. I'm a writing sprint is just like, okay, just 10 minutes. I'm just going to jot some stuff down on paper. It, yeah, it, it definitely makes it, it's more like, I don't know. I don't, I want to see equalizing. It just makes it more, um, uh, it, it levels the playing field. It makes it feel more like, okay, I can do this. This is, it yeah. It's doable to just sit for five minutes and write down a couple of things and then walk away and go back to it later.
3: Yeah, and it's also like you're slowly, it is like a mountain to sometimes do those big projects. So to be able to find these little moments where you make these moments of advance, you sort of don't, like the experiences has been, that I've had just in my own writing life and this maybe mm-hmm. gets some of your other questions, right? Is just thinking about if I'm sitting there writing this big project just little chunks of the time keeping that really active connection to am i feeling it am i thinking about it am i like connecting to these characters am i connecting the story even if it's these little windows of time every day mm-hmm. i find that over i, I real i sort of look down and realize like oh my gosh the ground is kind of a long way away at this point right and i don't know
1: yeah like you're you're building it's like building steps or something mm-hmm. and so yeah you end up you end up at the at the top step Without even realizing it.
3: Yeah, like any kind of like, like caring for things. Like if you're like sort of, like if you know, like I have like I have like a bunch of plants and I have like cats and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And like, like my partner has a million animals. Like it's sort of like every day you have a very limited amount of stuff that you do to sort of be in relationship with those things. Like oh, like I need to see if you do you need water or not? Yes or no. If you do, yes. Do I, do you need better light, etc.? Do you need a bigger pot? Yeah. If you just sort of do those little moments of staying connected to it, then eventually it's just like it will grow. The relationship will grow. It will just become. It will become a living connection to a thing. And I don't think it's different with writing. Yeah.
1: Way. Yeah. It's it's all it's all possible. Um, for whatever reason, um, the movie uh, and and book uh, about a boy just popped into my head, and uh-huh. uh, in in the uh, in the story, the main character would. Um, his day was cut up into units and so like I don't know feeding the cat for instance would be like one unit of like 30 minutes or like you know going out to to date a a woman and um because he was kind of a con man in a way it was like that that was like two units or something like that uh so so anyway, do you, how do you, what, what is your day-to-day, what is the day-to-day requirements of an acclaimed author? Like, like what, uh, what is your daily re- writing routine like? Just and, like, and is it like two units, one unit?
3: I mean, clearly given, given, given my level of acclaim, it's clearly <laughs> the thing in the like radiance <laughs> of this text that, no.
1: Well, that's, that's at least one unit. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs>
3: It's like 20 units. Oh,
1: wow, nice.
3: <laughs> no, no, I try to think of it like, I sort of have used different systems over the years, right? Mm-hmm. What the system that I'm using right now is trying to think um, less in terms of units, just cause I don't have that much writing time at this point in the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. And more in terms of kind of the, the relationship metaphor I was using. We mm-hmm. use a couple different things where it's like, um, there's one like tracking system I use that is just like 10 things I care about. Oh. Sort of like keeping a connection with like writing as a practice, keeping a connection with art as a practice, like Instar books, publishing company, like day job as one, mm-hmm. other people around, like, et cetera. It's sort of like things that I care about in the world, right? And trying to break out my day in terms of like, what am I gonna do toward these things today?
4: Mm -hmm.
3: And then sort of thinking about how much time do I have and and kind of holistically assessing like, okay, like I've got an hour, I can probably write a scene from the point of view of this one character that I don't know yet as Mm -hmm. a way of toward that. I can, for like publishing stuff, I can look through this one list, et cetera. And just trying to make sure that I'm, I don't get to every priority every day. It's right. sort of over time you see if there's stuff that's being neglected and you think, okay, well, I need to just make that more of a thing this coming week. And just trying to think of it partly on those lines, but partly I have a daily list of like stuff that I want to remain in relationship with, mm-hmm. where it's sort of like, I want to remain in relationship with my plants. I want to remain in relationship with cats. I want to remain in relationship with like friends. I want to remain in relationship with writing. And just trying to make sure I'm doing something to just like check in with that relationship. hmm over time i don't know that i mean i haven't finished a lot in a while so i don't know how useful this is to export or something but i think at least during this time where i find myself during the pandemic just struggling with the whole idea of compartmentalizing time Mm
4: -hmm.
3: you know especially where i'm talking to you just literally having just signed out of like work for the duration of this meeting and then signing back into work like sort of going to very different headspaces without like leaving this desk. Right. Zoom background or anything like that, right?
5: Uh huh.
3: So thinking about, I feel like when somehow the pandemic is over, I may wanna get more like, I need to do like four Pomodoros today worth of writing on this book or something like that.
1: Oh, that the Pomodoro test was like 20 minutes.
3: Yeah, 25 and then five where you you do, you work in a focused way for 25 minutes and five. I loved that, like that was my go-to. Before Ah. the pandemic, I would be like, I need to do at least like four Pomodoros on writing a day. And it could be at any point during the day, it could be like, but as long as I do that, then I know I'm making progress. I think I just can't think in terms of like, I've needed to sort of over the past two years, really get into a place more about listening to where I'm at, listening to where my body is at, listening to all these things, right? And just trying to remain in relationship with all the things I wanna be in relationship with without thinking about like, how do I quantify the time that I'm in the relationship with these things? Right.
5: Yeah.
3: I think like right now, it's just, it just doesn't work for me. And I, I, I don't, I don't know other people do it, but
1: yeah. Yeah. Cause we're not robots. So yeah. it's, it's hard. It's hard to, uh, to break up our day in, in uh, specific times and then stick to it. We're not always going to follow through on, on the list that we've, we we've you know made for ourselves but like yeah. but somehow you have written a book during uh, a novel during the pandemic you you've through all of that through your pomodoros through your writing sprints you you've um created a character um well it's a, a, a two main characters uh gala and then there's bu who's also Diane.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: and so yeah which I, I loved. Um, so if you could just talk about, um, summer fun, it's a very, it's a wild fun. It's often heartbreaking, uh, read, especially there, there is the element of family too. Um, and, and, uh, like the, uh, bus father, A uh, bu is, uh, is the, the beginning initial of, of someone's, uh, name that mm-hmm. eventually became, uh, also known as, as Diane. So Mm -hmm. when Diane became her true self, um, there are still people from her past that, that like including her family that she Mm -hmm. still has to deal with. And so I I thought there there were some really funny moments um, like when Diane is, um, she's uh, talking to her mother and uh, there's a line and I can't exact, I was trying to find it in my notes, but it was something like, um, she didn't want her existence to give her father a heart attack, um, but but it's said in like the most sincere way, like not sarcastic. Um, so was was your main was was Bach or Diane your your main character first? is that the first image that you had in your mind when you were coming up with summer fun? Um, and then also I want to talk about Summer Fun in general because it's it's a music, it, it has to do with music and, and the love of music and there's yeah, a yeah. fan named Gala. But, but first up, like, who was the first character that you thought of?
3: Um, no one has asked me that and I have to think back. I do have to say that this this book has been in the works for a really long time. So it's a very, very small part of it, it was actually just during, basically just cleaning up the last little bits was during the pandemic. Just because oh, wow. I don't, I don't want anybody to think that I like am that productive during a worldwide plague.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I saw, I saw Tory Peters. Uh, there was a a comment or or a blurb, and mm-hmm. and um, there was a mention that that it's been six years in the making, something like that. So, so it's been years, like a few years that you've been working on this.
3: Yeah, yeah. The actual, this book started in 2009 when I was, was 26. I'm 38 now, which is just a weirdly different life experience in a bunch of ways. Yeah. But I remember the book started from, I was living with my ex in a remarkably bad apartment in Long uh-huh. Island City.
1: Nice. A- but it was probably big.
3: Yeah, it was a really. It was a basement apartment. Oh. It was two bedrooms underneath. It was like a two-bedroom railroad-style apartment. Uh huh. I remember it cost exactly seven hundred dollars a month. Um, as long as no one found out about it, it was. It was technically, or at least, like had it listed as like storage space or something. Oh my god! <laughs> Super crazy. Like we ended you up found
1: like, it on Craigslist.
3: I think so. I think so. It was. Um, I remember there were like it was a beautiful place in some ways. Like it had these checker. I always thought of it as like the black lodge from Twin Peaks, where it's got these like checkerboard floors and like oh, wow. all these like weird neon up. But it had the when we moved in, all the windows were like barricaded. There was like foam paneling over the windows that we weren't supposed to remove because then like a building inspector could see in and know that we were living there, right? Oh. It was super, I was like interning at a publishing company at the time, who wasn't really paying me and drawing these comics about anemia for like a foundation. For like, it was like this is this really grim like <laughs> New York, right? Where like, it was basically just a very intense time, and I remember sitting in there while. So, so there was
1: no sunlight in this in this apartment.
3: No, we had a very large outdoor yard that was sort of a feral cat colony was living in. Oh. Or initially, over initially, it was all overgrown with like bottles and stuff, and then uh-huh. about halfway through living there, it just got sick of it and went out there with like a rake and like pulled up all the weeds and stuff. So the, the cat colony had to move elsewhere. Yes. But we had like this sort <laughs> of like grim yard. Uh huh. <laughs> um. But I was so anyway, we had like this outdoor area where you could go and sit, but like indoors, yeah, there was no light at all. And mm-hmm. like, I remember sitting down there one day and I was doing, I was writing like freelance articles or something to make some extra money. At
4: mm-hmm. the time.
3: And just taking a break from one sitting down there and just feeling this intense oppression of the space and thinking about this was right around like Michael Jackson was still alive. This is the weird thing is oh. the book actually started with Michael Jackson in some ways.
1: Oh, wow. So this is
3: probably like 08. Maybe 08, maybe This is maybe the first, this is one of the first impulses that led to the book. Yeah, where it was okay. right after he got evicted from Neverland Ranch, like he lost it.
1: Uh-huh.
3: And I remember going, like taking a break and looking at all of these like photos of Neverland Ranch, which I hadn't seen, right? Mm-hmm. And just like this, it's like the person who was selling it was like had all these like different, like the carousel with like the sign saying this ride belongs to Michael Jackson and everything and looking through it. Wow. And just thinking all this stuff where it's like, what does isolation do to someone if you have enough money to kind of like really follow it to the limits? Like if you sort of really can live out exactly the creative existence that you want to live mm-hmm. to the finest detail, like, do you grow, for, like, it, it's sort of like, it was this thing about like, this is someone who's living the exact life they want to live, but it's also this like super childlike, like fantasy, right, of like what it would be. So it sort of started from, and it was, I was thinking about it while I was in this, I remember looking at these photos while I was in this basement room, it uh-huh. was totally weightless, And just thinking about like the the weird, iso- just thinking about isolation and have these like non-happy thoughts. That sort of, that pretty quickly changed over to just thinking, like, there's some kind of thing to write in this. And that sort of dovetailed with, I'd already been really interested in the Brian Wilson story around that point. Yeah. It was all of it, I don't remember the exact sequence that it came together. The first character that I knew about was actually Gala. I sort of knew that I was going to transition at some point. I hadn't at that time. Mm -hmm. And was thinking about... This town in New Mexico I had been to when I was 19, and the sort of intense experiences I had had there, just traveling across the country, mm-hmm. um, All of the book kind of grew together just by thinking about, I want to write something about transness, I want to write something about New Mexico, I want to write something about celebrity and music and isolation,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and I want to write something about westward expansion that related to New Mexico-ness, right? Mm -hmm. And all of it sort of came together at the same time, but the first actual piece of writing in the book is this just scene I remember writing in June of 2009, that's just Gala describing her day. It's Mm -hmm. nowhere in the book or anything like that. And it's maybe like three paragraphs long, but for a long time, that was all that actually existed in the book was just like knowing that it was gonna be this trans woman who lived in New Mexico in a trailer. Mm in her isolation there, and then it sort of grew together into this other thing. That's a very long way of answering your question. I hope that made some sense. Or-
1: but yeah, totally. But it, it, so it seems like like Gala is the is the driving force behind the the novel because also Gala is a, a huge fan of this um, of this band that existed in the sixties, mm-hmm. uh, and then there was this album called Summer Fun. And it's interesting because my, my husband is a huge uh, smile, like a Brian Wilson smile. Oh, very and, okay. and so smile was, um, uh, and I, I, I don't have all the facts in front of me, but but smile was a, a sort of like a dream that maybe Brian Wilson had, like this was like, this, this was going to be his like big moment, big musical yeah. moment. And it took years and it wasn't until the 2000s that it actually came out. Um, and so so it, it like, so I, I thought it was really interesting how, um like this sort of framework of Brian Wilson and then also like the Beach Boys, the music was all about like, you know, sun fun surf, and, yeah. and girls. but he was a very sad person.
3: yeah, there's um
1: and 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 had a lot of um of inner turmoil in his life, but the music was all very happy. You know, the mm-hmm. get happies. The band is called the get happies.
3: Yeah. There was something uh, about that really early on where it's like that. Um, I don't remember exactly how I used to talk about this, but this is deep in the book too, that like you sort of, when you have someone who's sort of coming from a place of very intense tormentedness, there's like a really strong drive and I think it's like kind of a childlike drive, which is one of the themes of Smile in a lot of ways. Like about yeah. uh, returning to childhood, like finding finding innocence again that's been lost. And all these different things, right? It's this really strong drive to have like everything can be redeemed. Like there's a world where everything will come together, no loss needs to happen, or anything like that.
4: That mm-hmm. I
3: think you really only get if you really, really need to believe in that story. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and it's sort of. I'm glad that he finally actually finished Smile. It would have been very sad if he had just had this album about that that never actually came
1: out. <laughs> yeah, and and what's sad, uh, like I, I I think he might have dementia right now. I I don't think that he's the the same person that he was uh, back when he started Smile. Yeah. So I, where he is now, if if he had if it had never come out. It probably wouldn't wouldn't have ever come out when it did. Yeah. Um, and so so I find it interesting that that um, uh, Summer Fun is this album in the in the in the novel that is is elusive. It's not it's not it's not ready yet. Like it, it hadn't it hadn't been ready to to come out yet. Um, and at the same time, you know, Di- Diane is, is finding herself, becoming herself, um, is at odds with with the people around her, her, her you know, quote unquote, loved ones. Um, and 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 they can't accept um, who Diane is and Diane's still trying to find a way. So there's I- isolation there, I guess, in in, mm-hmm. in what we were talking about. Um, but then Gala has um, a... Uh, a friend, uh, Rhonda, and they have a connection, but they but Gala in a lot of ways is also isolated. So it's a lot of it's a lo- lonely people, very lonely people <laughs> trying trying to to find uh, connection, and they find connection through letters too. So like Gala is mm-hmm. writing letters. Um, I, I I there's a lot of witchy references too in in the mm-hmm. novel. Um, so, like you, you have um, like there's uh, references to like sigils, and then there's a moment where Gala and Rhonda are in a in a hot spring, and they're describing the moment as like boiling together in soup, and uh, you know, and and people do find solace in like cult stuff. I know that I like I'll burn sage or I'll buy a candle from House of Intuition in in LA or or, or crystal. Um, so I, I wonder if like you've ever dabbled in in the occult or even a little bit or because it, it does show up also in the dream of dr bantam so <laughs> like what is your connection to um to to cosmic stuff
3: oh my gosh how do i don't even answer this i don't um because also,
1: I? and then also, like you mentioned, cats. I have cats. Um, cats also kind of um, they, 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 there is a connection there with with uh like culty witchy stuff in cats. So anyway,
3: I have, total, I have a total witch cat. I don't know if she's sometimes she's right behind me and through that door. So I don't think she's there. But I have a I have a black cat named Sweet Sweet. Who's oh like,
1: nice. I have a black cat named Raisin.
3: Amazing! Amazing. I wish we had our cats so we could do the Zoom I, know. <laughs> I She's not around, but um, yeah, I think that the connection to witchcraft stuff is sort of a really complicated one, I think, over time. I mm-hmm. can definitely say that, um, you know, I have like different practices. I have like candle burning, I do incense and all these different things. I try not mm-hmm. to, I try not to for any purposes or anything, just again, like being in like being in relationship with different things. You want to just be in relationship with the spirits, right? More yeah. than you want to ask them for stuff, I think. It's like the way I sort of think about it, um, to try to, I don't know, just hang out in some ways. But I think that it's, I'm trying to remember exactly how I represent that in summer. There's like there's been so many drafts of this book over the years that I don't remember sometimes like what's in the final book and what's like in drafts and things like that. Yeah. I know that in the beginning she's sort of trying to the way that the letters and the witchcraft start to come together is that she's trying to use combine them, right? Like she's trying to summon she's trying to connect with with B through. Um, with Diane rather through the um, she wants to like get the band back together if I remember how it opens
5: yeah
3: yeah it's sort of I think there's there's something very sinister about Gala's witchcraft that I I hope is not true of my relationship with the spirits like I don't, I don't approve of what she does in the book at least I guess is the way I can answer that yeah I don't know. Cause there's something, there's something sort of sinister about the whole plot that she's kind of like narrating this person's life to her at a distance that she doesn't know in a way that's sort of. um
1: It's kind of what fans do though.
3: Yeah. There's like, like it, sociality.
1: When, when, uh, cause I also like, you know, you're, you're the um, summer fun gives me a lot of uh, different vibes. I I'd mentioned to you in an email, like um, I, I thought of like, cause like Truth and Consequences, New Mexico reminded me of um, this book called Generation X by Douglas Copeland. Um, I remember having it as a kid and not really understanding cause it, it was like adults, but like I, um, but there was that, there was uh, the idea of like these people living in the Southwest. Also, um, uh, Velvet Gold Mine was, was another uh-huh. one too because in Velvet Gold Mine, um, they took the framework of, of David Bowie um, and created this new this new story, mm-hmm. uh, and and as part of the story, there's a fan played by Christian Bale, and the fan becomes a journalist. And then uh, it, the movie is very like I loved it when it came out, but then like watching it now, it's very like slow moving. Um, but it's it's a it's still a great story. Um, Todd Haynes, but but anyway, it's it's basically taking the framework of of David Bowie. Um, Christian Bale is this fan and has this, this idea of mm-hmm. this, this uh, it's Brian Slade, the 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 character in the, in the movie. Um, that's sort of like an amalgamation of like all these different characters, but like the first, but like Ziggy Stardust, you think, you think it is. And, and so he, it, Christian Bale had this, like this specific idea of the, the kind of person that Brian Slade was and, and is, but mm-hmm. then realizes years and years later that, that, that um, he's not who he thought he was. And so I, I would imagine that being with Gala too, that Gala has this idea of Diane as, as this particular person, but it, it's, it's, it's what was created from um and I hate to say the media, but like you know, just seeing the person on TV, seeing the person like in videos and, and music, it it, it it's uh, it's you know how you see someone is not is not necessarily the person that you um, if you knew in real life is is the person that you would um, you would get. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that was that that kind of um, that that for Gala, it was it was it was driven by that by by what they thought that Diane was Mm -hmm. in their mind.
3: Yeah, no, for sure. I think like uh, there's a scene where she and another character, Caroline, I think are watching like YouTube videos trying to find evidence. They're trying to find like Caroline's like grandmother is like connected to the plot in like various ways. And they're, they're trying to find evidence of her by watching these old YouTube videos and stuff. And it's like, I don't know if I ever went through at any point in the book and sort of wrote down what facts about the whole book is filtered through Gala's perspective. Yeah. But there's sort of a question about like how Gala's narrating the Diane parts versus like what we actually sort of see to be true about about Diane, about the get happies, right? And there's actually not very much that's not directly Gala saying something to Diane in that you voice. Mm-hmm. I think it's like, we know that there's a reunion concert scheduled because she finds the CD. We know that there's YouTube videos. We know a couple other things, but it's really not a lot. And I, want, I sort of, that's by design. Like, I want there to be a really, really big question in the reader's mind about how much of this is even true of this, like, fictional band and everything like that. I think that there's, there's another element of the book that's sort of specifically trans, I think, that's also about... Um, when I was writing this book, there were a couple of similar, I think there was sort of a period of trans discourse that like the writing this book sort of intersects with. Mm-hmm. That was really, that I think is sort of coming to an end now, but the idea of like figuring out who back projecting transness or trying to see latent transness in people in the past in particular, mm-hmm. often people we admire. Like at the same time I was writing this book, uh, the writer Imogen Binney who wrote Nevada which is um, sort of super canonical trans text That's like coming out in a new edition, I think next year from FSG. I was on tour with her at one point and we sort of realized that we were writing very similar books. She was writing one that I hope will come out at some point because it was the stuff I heard from her was fantastic about um, Kurt Cobain, where it's sort of like on a tour with like Kurt, or no, it's this um, Nirvana cover band that's interspersed with Tales of the Band in the present tense in mm-hmm. these moments of looking back at, like, the lead singer, thinking about Kurt Cobain as, like, a trans person, as a trans woman, right? Yeah. And um, there was at least one other that was very directly that. And then um, a very good friend Casey Platt, was doing this book, Little Fish, that's sort of a similar, a similar thing, although it's not a celebrity. Thinking that the character, um, the main character uh, Wendy, finds out that her grandfather may have been secretly trans right It sort of comes up um, historically and i think there was like a lot of this not just in terms of book projects but a lot of this, this sort of like discourse level like think of this person is like this is term that sort of is popular for love, like an egg or something it's like oh that person's like a secret egg that needs to be cracked yet i had like a pet theory about a certain musician from the band genesis that i won't oh. go into detail on right but peter like, gabriel yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> I can I can go into this theory in detail, but it's irresponsible too. I think, but I think because like, it's just all in your head. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about this person, but it's sort of there's that need at that moment to kind of like, like people have talked about. There's like a lot of discourse about different writers. There's discourse about different historical figures and things. There was this real, real need to like, because we just don't have a lot of out history. The question of what transness is changes a lot over time. Yeah. There are very, very few, I think, people that it's kind of unambiguous, right? There's like a Roman emperor, like uh, Hila Glabilis. There's like the excellent swordswoman, Chevalier de Aeon,
4: mm-hmm.
3: a couple others like that, right? But until you get to the 20th century, there's not, I think there have always been trans people, but sort of the way we right. historicize ourselves have been very different. I think there was a period of time where we were really just hungering to find that, and to project that back and so the book is a lot of it comes from that place of really wanting to see like what is our history what would we look like in the past like I was a lot of the book for me personally was thinking about contrasting Gallo's life as a trans woman relatively isolated in the 21st century Mm -hmm. like what would it look like to have this like very, very specific kind of trans existence in the 60s. And, you know, there's there were many, many out trans people in the 60s who just like had actual, like, there's I've been reading about this relatively recently. There was like a large activist movement in the Tenderloin district, it was primarily, oh, yeah. I think. There was um, a different movement upstate in the Catskills, it was centered on the House of the Custis, Susanna. There's many, many others, right? Mm-hmm sort of explicit. So it's thinking about, I don't know, something about the way we relate to celebrities, the way we want to, the parasociality we form with them, the way we project that life, felt like it was sort of dovetailing into like this real longing to have a history that I felt as like a trans person. And I think it's like, like to take it out of just transness, I think like everybody feels that, and that's sort of at the root of that parasociality, right? Like we really we form an emotional bond with people's work and we really, really want to feel like there's some line connecting us to it. Yeah. And that's gonna flow into whatever channel is sort of the most painful for us in some ways. I think with transness, it's like I don't know, just even when I, I I find myself when I just like something a lot. Like when I really like like a piece of music, when I really like a piece of writing, I start thinking like Oh, this is really cool. I think this is really great. I wonder if this person is trans, right? It's like part of the way parasociality flows in that in that direction, in a way that I think is like I don't know, just I don't know how we don't do that as people.
1: <laughs> well well yeah, I mean I think I, I do it as, uh, as uh, you know, a Black person, as uh, my family's from Haiti. You know, I I think about, like, how would I fit into this story? So, like, um, you know, earlier we were talking about Kahinde Wiley and, and taking um, yeah. paintings from the French Renaissance and then uh, changing the faces and the bodies to being, you know, modern-day um, modern people. Uh, and then you know, now, now we have seen, you know, people just like you're, were, you're were mentioning. So like, you know, there's Elliot Page, there's Tommy Dorfman uh, right now, or, or like uh, Teddy Geiger. Um, but in the past there's Wendy Carlos, there's um, my mm-hmm. husband was telling me about Jennifer Latham, La- late, um it was a bass player. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've seen them transform into their, their true selves mm-hmm. in the public eye. Um
0: yeah.
1: And so I I love how, uh, you know, Gala is someone who's already, I guess, um, I don't, I don't want to say fully formed, but like, it's somebody that is, is living, is living their, their life. Whereas, uh, Diane is, um, we, we find her, um, in transition and then becoming, becoming who she is. Um, so I, I love how, how, um, how the it's, I I don't want to say it's the beach boys that like the framework that you're taking, but like, uh, and upending, but like, but it's really cool because it is, that is an era that like, was very, uh, like masculine, uh, and surf girls and yeah, California girls. Uh, but within that, that, that time period, there were, there were trans people, there were, um, I don't know, there were black people making all kinds of music or, or interested in all sorts of things but that we didn't necessarily see. Um, so I'm I, you know I'm curious if like um, was when you were thinking about this story and I guess I guess Gala is the first character, um, were you always was it always the 60s like surfer, rock, era that you were thinking of or or were you exploring other thoughts like you you mentioned Kurt Cobain but this was another another person's project but was was there ever um a point where you were thinking like oh maybe I should have this in the 90s or maybe I should have this some other time like why why the 60s era
3: um it was really sort of a consequence of the you know I, I had started thinking about it it's just sort of isolation. Um, and then sort of once it, once it connected with just having a really strong personal interest in the Brian Wilson Beach Boys story, like I had been reading, um, I'd kind of known about the band for years and years and I'd been reading, um, I had known there had been, circling way back to something you said earlier, that there was this kind of two faces of the band. There's this sort of like public like I wish everybody could be California girls right and then like knowing that like it's like one type of song they have and the other one is like this other single called like till I die where it's like Brian Wilson singing about like being obliterated by the ocean (laughs) (laughs) so happy (laughs) yeah there's like this way that the band has these two these two faces in the same way I think the 60s had this sort of like strong optimism and this also real sense of disillusionment Mm-hmm. In this real sense of almost destructiveness, and there were different—you know—everything sort of flowed to just want to locate things in that time period. Um, basically, because the the amount of—I think the '60s are always going to be relatively compelling to write about because so much changed in a very, very short period of time, mm-hmm. and did so at the level of at the level of culture, almost year by year. Yeah in terms of like what was acceptable to do, like what was, how were people thinking? I think with, um, and I always felt like the, the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson story kind of catches that in this really direct way, in part because with a band like the Beatles, there's this almost too good story of evolution. It's like, oh, they started out being this bar band that sang songs about like like boy girl love and then they became psychedelic and like gained like depth and resonance as artists, right? Yeah. Whereas the Beach Boys are compelling to me be because they started to do that and then stopped.
1: Like with pet sounds.
3: Yeah, with pet sounds and smile. And then there was this really interesting quote I came across at some point where Brian Wilson's talking about pet sounds saying specifically like that was the album where we tried to have a feminine energy and then like I use like Mike Love like one of the the lead, lead singer for a lot of the tracks right
1: yeah who's like a trumpster but anyway yeah I, that
3: dude. <laughs> I that dude but like it's um basically saying like Mike Love brought the masculine energy and just trying to parse that quote like what is that what did he mean when you said that quote like why yeah. would you do it and that there was something that was really there's all sorts of for a band that's like almost, almost like what you think of when you think of like a like dumb bro band in terms uh-huh. of what they're about, like, <laughs> it just like there ends up being this real complication. A lot of the songs are like like similar with like Bruce Springsteen's masculinity. A lot of the songs are actually about like deep anxieties of masculinity. There are a million like.
4: Mm-hmm
3: like they're just as there are Bruce songs that are about like, like one day you're going to like see through me or something. And how long will that be? And then like, there's also, that's also like a million Beach Boys songs, right? I think it's like sort of this weird crisis about that.
1: Like what, what it's like to be a man, the pressures of being a man.
3: Yeah. But specifically the idea that like, they're thinking that they're not in this key way. Right. I think like it gets, some of it just started to feel really, I don't even know. It, it's sort of, you're asking me sort of like if there was thought of, if there was a better choice to be made in some ways. And it's sort of like, I'm just sort of reeling as I'm narrating it with how like little I doubted that this was the right thing to do, even like to the point of just not questioning it early on. Like it's sort of like, it felt like almost like just faded that this was gonna be the book in some ways.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think it's, I think it, it works. It's. Um on On so many levels, it's also really funny too. Because like another thought is um, there's a like a documentary series called "The Decline of Western Civilization."
4: Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh,
1: so, so that I also think of is the part two. So the part one is about like the late '70s punk uh, LA scene. So like with the Germs, for instance. Part two is the hair metal. So some are fun. I was like, oh, this is like kind of like decline of Western civilization. So these these were um, these were, you know, people like uh, like bands like Poison or Kiss, like yeah. the hair metal with the makeup and like very glam. Um, but it was all as a means to like to pull the chicks like to get to get girls was like, you know, how much how much makeup you could wear and like you know hairspray and um so so there was gender bending but they were also very toxically masculine at the same time um so so that idea of like being sort of like tortured but like i don't know like they're sort of like they're the idea like to be be have like they 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 took their they took advantage maybe of their their inner inner turmoil I don't know is it, it, it worked to their advantage because it got them laid i I don't I don't know I don't I don't know why I'm thinking about that uh, why I'm connecting it at all
3: mm-hmm. I've wanted to see that that movie's been on my list for like forever and ever it's on Amazon oh it's on Amazon now. oh my yeah. god.
1: Yeah, awesome. you might have to pay for it. You might have to pay like three bucks, but oh, it's... I don't.
3: It was hard to see for a minute. I remember you had to like, like I looked into it, and I it felt like at the time I looked, it was like you had to pay for like a screening, like one of those like extreme like things, right? Yeah. But if it's on Amazon, I totally want to see it. It's been on my list forever.
1: Yeah, it's it's great because uh, you know, these are, and 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 they um, they were so driven, like especially uh the the first the first uh, movie that they're punk. It's it's um. I forgot his name from the germs. Um, what's his name? Uh, that died. Uh he's the leader of the germs. Not Pat Smear, but like um I can't think of his name. Darby Crash. So you have Darby Crash, um in the in the first movie, and and they're just it, it, it's all for like the love of 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 uh, music and and um, you know fucking around, just having a good time. Whereas the second one, they were this was like this is a business. This is this is how we're going to succeed. You know, all or nothing. We're going to be rock stars on MTV. Um, and uh, so for for um, Diane's character, Diane was uh, in your in in summer fun wasn't driven it wasn't like the father the father seemed more sort of money hungry and and seeing seeing the dollar signs uh as their manager but like it seemed like um diane was more just about like the creative and just just you know existing and and making music mm-hmm. um and so so yeah so the, these are all the thoughts that are or were, were swirling in my in my mind you know Mm-hmm. uh, reading the book. It's, it's, uh, all this to say, it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun read, but, um, what, what was your proudest moment working on this?
3: Um, I don't even know. I, I sort of have to go back to decline, <laughs> decline of Western civilization. Part. Okay. I was thinking about, um, I'm thinking about the, like, my mind goes to this weird at one point I read an oral history of KISS.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> That's like, another one, but they're queens, queen's energy. Yeah.
3: Uh-huh. Like, it was this really, in part I read it just because I think KISS is, like, the most evil band. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, in terms of, like, just being... It's complicated where it's like they're so venal that it, like, almost circles around again and becomes yeah. <laughs> But it's I remember endearing talking about the idea that like the sort of like 80s engagement in like like if who has the t- who has the tallest like the biggest eyeliner wings and like the tallest platforms will like get the most girls kind of yes one. thinking about this one moment in this oral history where it's just like after after kids is sort of hitting it big
4: mm-hmm.
3: and they're there's like this thing where Gene Simmons has like taken a member of another band into literally look at a room full of money. I don't remember the context for this at all, but he's literally just taken someone into look at like a room full of stacks of dollar bills.
1: Like Scrooge McDuck kind of.
3: Yeah. And like, room. Like, person being like, I've never seen anyone do that. Like I've never seen anyone be like, actually take me to see their money <laughs> in like a hoard and like, you know, and then and maybe conflating two stories, but there's like another yeah. member of the band just starts weeping, like thinking that like, this band is so successful doing this and I just wanna play music, but now I'm gonna to have to start dressing like this band because that's what the kids want now. And then taking that, connecting it to like, Velvet Goldmine and David Bowie, right? Thinking that yeah. David Bowie is like sort of the entry point of a lot of like, probably Mark Bolan as well, right? And Sid Barrett from yeah. Pink Floyd is sort of the entry point of a lot of like explicit, like playing with gender in, in music presentation, right? right. And I know David Bowie influenced by Barrett and Bolan, um, both of whom I think had, like, like were sort of schizophrenia adjacent in some ways.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It's sort of like,
1: oh, Crazy Diamond.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. The your Crazy Diamond, right? But yeah. I, I that, do you know the David Bowie song The Beulah Brothers? No. It's this really good. It's one that I, I think he only played a couple times in concert before he died. What what album? It's from Hunky Dory. It's the last. Trip oh.
1: On Hunky Dory. Uh
3: huh. but it's basically it's a song that's about his brother like when they were kids and like sort of like his brother was schizophrenic and they would do um like they would like cross trust together uh-huh. it got this line in it about like the factor max that proved the facts has melted down is like one of the things and there's some speculation that a lot of the ziggy stardust is like really the moment where like music where it became like oh, it's cool to gender bend in rock music, right? That was, I think, where it became mainstreamed, is really him connecting back. There's things like him appearing on the dress on the cover of Manus of World, right? Right. That's in some ways, I think it's like, sort of this way that it gets like, this thing that feels complicated and charged kind of gets like, it's recognized that it has like a social use value that's pretty venal, right? Because kiss is like kiss is taking it from David Bowie and the glam movement, yeah, and then recognizing like, oh, like girls like us when we gender bend, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's like this whole complicated, I don't know, messy thing. It's also it's something I feel like charged about just because there's sort of like a.
1: It's kind of it's kind of like a, a appropriation. What do you mean? Like a like a like a cultural appropriation. Like they they um, people talk about that like. Um, so, 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 like, say, like Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley are 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 taking um, something, like, you know, David Bowie. I I would imagine was was connecting with his with with his brother. They they were just exploring. There was something um, not I wouldn't say innocent, but there was something sort of pure about it. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, um, like say like you know 80s hair metal bands were like oh we're gonna make money off of this this is this is uh
3: yeah I think at that point it was sort of a given that that was going to be that was like the cool that was a route to coolness in ways like yeah story of like like John Cougar Mellencamp right where they sort of like do you know this whole story where they like made him be a glam rocker and he's like yeah his first albums are all under the name like Johnny Cougar and they made him like gender bound and like, with like tall hair and everything. And like gradually. Oh, I didn't sort of know of like, that. Yeah. It's like, it's this really weird story where he sort of like fought the record companies to be kind of like a boring Midwestern. dude. <laughs> <laughs> like his personal vision was just to be like this sort of like, like basic Iowa guy.
1: Right. Right. I thought, I thought like John Cougar Mellencamp was, was because of um, was yeah. The country boy, Midwestern dude. Uh, but it was actually, but John Johnny Cougar, John Cougar was like a glam name.
3: Yeah. Those first couple wow. singles, I Need a, like I Need a Lover Who Won't Drive Me Crazy is like this, like Johnny Cougar song. That's all like-
1: oh, I had no idea. <laughs>
3: it's a weird history. It's a weird history. There's like a whole discourse about that. I like that when it, I, I like the idea of like having this sort of like, cause there's so, there's so much of a fraught discourse around like drag- around mm-hmm. like dressing aesthetics in general about, it's a hard thing to talk about in some ways because there's sort of a like, like turf, like trans exclusionary radical feminist like talking point about like, oh, like trans women are appropriating like cis women in general. Yeah. So it's like a really, and like the idea that like drag queens are like parodying women and all this, it's this really toxic discourse, right? I really like that it seems like through this conversation, we're sort of introducing another wrinkle to it where it's like, kiss is appropriating transness.
1: (laughs) 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 Which I never really thought of, but yeah, they kind of, they kind of, they kind of were.
3: Yeah, I think there's like, I would be, this is like a, a, like I'm sort of like imagining this sort of like thin tightrope we're walking out on in the discourse here, but I would be really fascinated to see like more, I'd be fascinated to see how people have written about this in some ways, right? Because I think that's like, I think there's a case to be made, right? That there's sort of like, like how, like wheels within wheels of terms of like appropriation accusations are possible within the glam rock and like hair metal scenes.
1: Yeah. They got, they, yeah, they have some one answers. <laughs> there's a, yeah. But it's 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 funny talking to you right now. So today is, um, it's uh, September the 1st. Mm-hmm. um we're talking on uh and I don't I don't know when I don't know if you if you follow drag race if you watch um yeah. oh, okay so um so we're talking on on September 1st uh Texas uh there like this uh terrible law has gone into effect that bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy it's the one of the strictest uh abortion bans in the country you've lived in Texas so you I, I know you have um, feelings about this. Um, also, this this comes at a time when I, I mentioned Drag Race because Kylie Sonique Love um, could very well win the All Stars. It's been a really great season um, uh-huh. if if you um, are at all interested. But uh, but Kylie Sonique Love could be the first uh, trans woman to win Drag Race this year because uh, she's been incredible throughout consistent. Huh. She did a, an incredible Dolly Parton impression uh during a snatch game and she could take it. She could win. It also could be um it it um uh it could be Eureka uh, I, I kind of feel like Eureka might win but it could be Kylie. But anyway, I'm just saying that like um this is a this is a time where like um it's a crazy time. Um conservativism um they're trying still you know keeping keeping their feet on our backs. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's Kylie, Sonique Love, there's, there's, there's you, there's, there's me, there's, you know, Issa Rae, there's, there's, you know, people out there that are, they're putting their diverse voices out there and, and, and that they want to be heard. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, it's still, it's not easy. And so like when you were pitching this, this book to be published, was this, um, was it a tough sell?
3: Yeah, it definitely was. It took, um, I had a great deal of help from my my very wonderful agent, Jin Ah.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But, um, it took about four years of trying to sell the book before it found the right editor. And um, I was talking with another trans author about this. There was sort of a consistent, like I think they were like, you know, like twenty, twenty-five rejections from larger places over the course of that time.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Many of them were sort of of a similar theme. That like, I love this book. I think it's great. I love everything about it. I just don't know what audience will have. Like, I don't know that mainstream audiences will care about this. Mm-hmm. Um, almost, but I'll be cheering it from the sidelines. It's sort of something I heard again and again, right? And it was um, either that was one and the other one was like, this book is great. I love this. I just don't feel like I really get the main character. In mm-hmm. one case, that was really explicitly tied to, at least one case, that was explicitly tied to like, I don't get why she'd transition. You haven't explained that. We're talking about Gala here, right? Yeah. And that was sort of very, you know, like books get rejections for all kinds of reasons, right? But it was sort of, there's another trans author I talked about who had been trying to sell she had had two books out already before she transitioned
4: Mm -hmm.
3: and sort of came out, wrote a third book about transness. And then despite having had, I think, pretty good sales for the first two, like had a period of time where she couldn't even get an agent at all for the, and was hearing exactly the same things like, oh, I love this. It's great, but I don't relate to it. Or we don't think readers will relate to it. Right. And I know there's one trans woman novelist I know who was facing the same thing and really had to write has talked somewhere about writing having to write a letter like having gotten that feedback saying like we don't think this book will sell well we don't think anyone will connect to it and having to write a letter saying like look you're wrong here's who's going to care about it in the trans world here's who's going to care about it in the cis world here's who's it's the same thing like that's certainly not exclusive to transness right I think any group that's any group that's like not like the mainstream audience right which is sort yeah. of we all know what the mainstream audience is, right? Like, why spell it out, right? It's sort mm-hmm. of, you just, it's just part of the territory. And I think one thing, one reason that I really, like, it's its not okay. You know, it's like garbage that it's that way. I think that a thing that helped me a lot with that period of, like, four years of just sort of, you know, getting my hopes up. There's one editor who um, was considering it for two years before finally saying no, which was really... Wow. That was really, really, really hard. He wrote me like a very intense email, but in my memory at like two in the morning, it came in or something crazy, but um, for two
1: years, I was like, oh, I'm thinking about
3: it. Yeah, I did. It was a whole thing. I did a whole rewrite of the book based on feedback from this person. And like, it was, it was just a messy situation. Wow. And it sort of ended up being like, oh, like, sorry i just really don't think we can sell it um to our readers and um that was very hard to take right yeah um i think like honestly you asked earlier about the proudest moment it was honestly just having the book come out at all after that i had really at a certain point just written it off that it was going to come out and been making sort of in the back of my mind plans to like put it up on a website or self-publish mm-hmm. just because i'm thinking about you know during this whole period of time, I was going to an all-trans open mic mm-hmm. that some people I know who were running was called a genre reassignment that's been around for years. And there's another one going now called Gender Experts. That's a, I think it's Metropolitan Bar in Brooklyn once a month on Tuesday nights. Like people should in Yeah, yeah, I totally want to plug it. Cause it's like, it's like this space at, um, when I was going to this, this trans open mic every month, It was basically the only way that I felt like I had any connection between what I was writing and readership at all.
1: Well, because you were able to share excerpts.
3: Yeah, from this book, I've written another book since this one that, you know, we're sort of starting the process of trying to sell and, you know, embracing myself for it to take another four years or something like that, right? It would have made me totally flip had I not had some sense that like, like breathing through reads, I can go to this reading and it'll be all like, all like trans people
1: Mm -hmm. reading their work want And who want to hear their stories.
3: Yeah, and who would come up to me and say like, I really appreciate that, who'd email me later about it. I would hear them reading stuff. And then it felt like having an actual writing community. If we go back to like sort of the history of publishing, there's a period of time mm-hmm. where it really is like people circulating manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Like people like, um, I don't know, just not relying on an increasingly fraught publishing world to provide that sense of community among writers i think is like something i know i, I know i talked about that in the writing sprints class sort of at the end of it you know yeah. like the importance of like don't wait for you know don't wait for people to publish you don't wait for the hand to reach down from the sky and tell you like what you're doing is valuable like find your pe- find ways to put your work out to your people now right find ways to circulate your work now um and then sort of sort out whatever the consequences of that are later I think that that really, I'm talking a long time about this, but that really, really drove home just having, you know, cause it's like, we're writing this stuff, especially when we're really articulating things among the community, right? Like I think about the moment I talked about earlier, we're all sort of back projecting history of transness. Mm-hmm. We're reading each other's work in drafts and manuscripts. We're talking about variations that we're doing within that. And a whole discourse that's evolving outside of any explicit publication a lot of time. Mm-hmm. This is evolving in like Discord chats and like living rooms and like picnics, open mics in these moments. I think that, and it's sort of like the sample rate of the publishing industry is like one in every thousand, something like that. As far as books that actually sort of get, spent. I think that the the publication of these books, particularly, I'm I'm so 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 happy this year. For just eight, one, how many trans books are coming out?
1: Yeah, yeah. Tori Peters, one person. Yeah, yeah. Her, yeah. In,
3: her in particular, just because that's such a big deal. That's such a yeah. big deal. That came out from Random House that it sold to the levels like national bestseller. It's going to be, I think, like a TV show and all this different stuff. That makes a huge, huge, huge difference. And it's like. Tori worked really, like I was, was talking to Tori during the period of writing that in some cases, she worked like a really, really long time on that book and then sort of like framing it in the way it is, the fact that it's that book that really is deep into sort of conversations trans like trans women in particular are having among ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then a book like that, that represents that, gets that level of sort of reception in a way that makes it really, really hard for those rejection letters to be generated ever again, that like me and yeah. Tori you're getting right that are like there's no market there's no mainstream audience it's like she sort of proved that there is that the book will be responded to in that way in a way that's going to it's still going to be hard Mm
4: -hmm.
3: you know there's still like going to be a sense of like i don't know there was a period of time where it's like people only kind of wanted the first trans thing you know like people really want there was like a like there's a caitlin greenidge tweet the other day where she was talking about i think with black literature specifically about how everybody yeah. wants to believe that it's like these writers are sort of coming out and it's like oh this person has emerged from like the wilderness and don't exist in any sort of tradition or right. like, any kind of discussion right i think that's what's th- that's going to play out with this as well with like trans literature i think and yeah like, is
1: that is that you've you've always been around it's not, you, you haven't just uh, sort of uh, materialized out of thin air.
3: Yeah, totally. But it's like, there's still that paying attention less to the publication moment of it and more to like, how does that, how does that conversation live? Like, what are the ways, what are the open mics? What are the journals? What are the conversations? Where do manuscripts circulate?
1: Mm-hmm. And like
3: building that level of literary ecology, I think is what, just what I wanna see continuing to happen, right?
1: Is is community community building?
3: Yeah, totally. totally. Mm-hmm.
1: So that was that. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, something, and in, this is my last question. But like, um, you were talking about um, Tori Peters' book, um, which is uh, which has been huge, um, and it's it has it's a win. Like my my in my mentoring group, uh, we talk about. Um, celebrating other people's win is that that a win for someone else is a win is a win for me like yeah. um you know someone getting um because i you know i want to work in tv so um you know someone getting staffed on a tv show that's a win for them but it's going to be a win for me because eventually uh, i'll have my turn too mm-hmm. um and so I, I i love that and i wonder for for you like how, how do you celebrate a win
3: Oh man, I don't even know. I just went to Montana as part of. There's like, I don't know if you got to the part in the book where they, they sort of a couple of the characters end up in Montana. I won't spoil it if you haven't. Mm-hmm. But it's like there was, it was this moment where I was. I knew that I wanted to like take a trip to just get out of New York during like during the period where I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna. Everything's gonna close down a lot more again. Yeah. In a couple months, so I I really felt like. I need to go somewhere else while I can and be in nature while I can for like one week. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was going to go to Truth or Consequences to sort of celebrate the book, but I thought, Hey, it's, it's going to be August. I don't want to go to New Mexico in August. Yeah. And B like, it felt like that's where the book started. You know, like the book started in when I was 19, I like drove through Truth or Consequences and had this intense time and like sort of carried a lot of the memories from that through
4: mm-hmm.
3: with this book. And I thought like, what can I do that sort of ends the book but sort of brings it into the future and that's really the only characters who really escape truth or consequences or or California I guess are the ones that go to Montana so I thought well I'm going to go to Montana too and like I don't know I think like celebrating with the trip celebrating with doing something to just get away from I don't recognizing that writing isn't the world you know for a little while
1: yeah
3: and going out and finding other things I think that that
1: like mountains and fresh air.
3: Yeah, like celebrating a win by leaving the game for a while, I guess. <laughs> you know, and trusting that trusting that you can leave it and then you can come back to it and everything will be fine. That you don't need to hold on so tightly though. That be. maybe yeah. the, more general, the more general case of celebrating a win is just like
1: that you, you can step away for, for a little bit and everything'll still be in motion. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that it's like if you, a quote that I believe in greatly is sort of if you love if you love something, set it free. You know, <laughs>
1: Sting. That's, right. That's That's a Sting what? song. If you love someone, set them surely the free.
3: Quote, surely the quote is older. Although it's if it's not, I feel, I still can <laughs> it, but I feel a little more foolish.
5: <laughs> He's a deep guy.
3: Sting. Yeah. yeah. Fields of gold. Fields of gold. <laughs> If I ever lose my faith in you, I haven't listened to Sting in a minute. I should listen to some, <laughs> I Should listen to some Sting today while I go back to work. For
1: the next yeah, the <laughs> sweet, the sweet bass. Nice. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Gene. This has been amazing.
3: This is such a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's really good to see you again, also.
1: Same here.
3: I hope everything keeps going great. I hope you have you. your own, your own TV wins like very soon to sort of step away from and like celebrate in all the good ways.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And I, I hope the same for you too. I um and and good luck with your project. And I I have a feeling it's not gonna be four years. You're not gonna be waiting. I think you just you just have to push forward. That's what we all have to do. Just keep yeah, yeah. pushing. It'll yeah. all
3: work out. it'll all work out in the end. Cross yes.
1: The yes.
3: End witchcraft.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's always that. There's always witchcraft. Always. Awesome. Let's play a game. So hey, so here with me now is cousin Carla. Hey, Carla. Hi. Hey. So this is um, today is Sunday, September twenty-six. Uh, we haven't talked for a while. I wanted to talk to you about what's been going on with um, the Haitians in the in the border um, who have since um, been uh, removed from that area in, uh, Del Rio. And so Kamala Harris, I think she said about like 5,000 have been able to apply for TPS. I don't know if anyone from there has made it into your, like any of anyone, like maybe a family member reached out to you, anyone that, that was stuck over there. Yes. Um, cause you are an immigration lawyer. Yes. So, what, what's it been like If um before we could play before we play a game can you talk about what's happening in haiti and abroad okay so as you said it's september 26
6: 2021 yep so as of today um the u.s is still dealing with the uh, with a uh, um, specific crisis at the border
4: mm-hmm. of
6: haitian mostly haitians apparently there were people from other nationalities too um oh. who yeah it wasn't just haitians but Haitians were predominantly, they were like the predominant group who were at the border. Um, And these are
1: people who have migrated from like Chile and Brazil and elsewhere to to that border. Because it's obvious like they didn't swim from Haiti.
6: Yeah. So these are people who were living in Latin America, most specifically South America, Mm -hmm. Chile, Brazil, um, Venezuela, maybe some... Mm -hmm. Ecuador, Mm -hmm. Peru, but mostly Venezuela, Chile, and um, Brazil. Yeah. And because of discrimination in those countries, very anti-Black policies, anti-Haitian, lack of opportunities, the pandemic, they decided to migrate up North. Right. Um, Some sold, you know, it's an expensive trip, so they had to um, finance it by either selling their their belongings. I've heard rumors of homes being sold. Wow. And yeah, and they came up north. It was like supposedly a two to three month trip mm-hmm. by foot, by bus. And um, they got to the border. And the issue is that many of them weren't e- weren't even given the opportunity to request political asylum, which does and, happen.
1: Yeah. And th- there's this thing that you were telling me about, like it was like a third party something like they have to be able to prove that they were persecuted against in the third country that they were in or something?
6: So in asylum law, there's something called firm resettlement. Mm -hmm. And firm resettlement is a uh, doctrine that if you are a national of country A, and you resettle in country B, If you come to the united states and seek asylum you have to you your burden is to prove that you um couldn't live or had a fear of living in country b where you were firmly resettled Uh so this is a um this is a big issue for these haitians because there's a there's a third there's an option of returning them to either Chile or to Venezuela. But they don't want them. But they don't want to go. Yeah, they don't want them. Like, I was reading up about Chile because I was like, what's been going on there um, with Haitians? And, you know, Chile has now a more uh, conservative government. Right. And they they have these new immigration policies which Mm -hmm. prevent Haitians from getting work visas. And so there's been, an, you know, a lot of people have been, like, a lot of Haitians have been, like, unable to sustain themselves there. So that's a big issue. But yeah, in, in oh. the United States and then Haitians always, you, historically, Haitians have been seen as economic migrants and mm-hmm. not political asylees, a mass, you know, there's always, one one you know, exceptions. But the reason why Haitians so easily get turned down in Miami when they used to come through the uh, boat, I mean, I'm sorry, when they used to come through water is because there's an assumption that people are only coming for jobs and that they're not coming because of uh, political asylum, which is based on, asylum has to be based on five grounds. So they're right. saying that Haitians usually don't meet any of those.
1: But there is a, there's definitely a political. There's, I mean, their the president was assassinated, so there's definitely uh, some political turmoil happening right now. Yeah. Um. But because they have that burden to prove that country B, as you explained, like the 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 place where they the places that they've resettled, they're not able to prove that, um, that they're being, uh, discriminated against, um, that they're being, um, they're, I don't know, shafted. They're being, they're, 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 they're being, um, ostracized and they're not able to make a life for themselves in country B. And so they're trying to go to country C, which I guess is America, um, as a, as a way to, uh, you know, make their lives better, but because they're not able to really prove it. And then there are some people who showed up at the border with no uh, paperwork. Yes. So that was also something else too.
6: That's another thing like asylum. It's a very, it's a catch 22 because asylum is supposed to be a benefit for people who are fleeing their country Mm -hmm. and basically hands in the air just help me like but then again it's a high burden to prove and you need documentation you need to have your story straight you know and these people sometimes are traumatized and can't explain what just happened to them right and here you know you have to draw out a very painful story i must say like if they are given the opportunity to present their asylum uh, the officers are a different branch of immigration and they are so understanding and patient and they'll listen to the story. And um, so for these Haitians, I really hope they just get an opportunity to be heard at least. Um, It was very disturbing that, you know, many were just sent away um, without, you know, at least, because you, you know, it does happen that you request a credible fear interview Mm -hmm. and, you know, the officer listens to you and says, um, I'm sorry, you don't have a credible fear. You can't come in to seek asylum. It's a very, very high burden to get asylum, Yeah, but at least let people be heard.
5: Yeah. Cause you uh, never know,
6: you never know. And like what happened to them, like I have some clients, things happened to them in the third country, you know, when yeah. they were in Venezuela, when they were in Chile and then they can't go back to Haiti. So it's super sad.
1: And then even just the journey from wherever yes. they came from to the border was dangerous. Um, and, and they, there was, they, they risked their lives and who knows who even made it.
6: I know. I Googled border. the Darien Gap. Did I tell you about that? No. Just go to YouTube, put Darien Gap and you'll see some reportings on it. It's the... It's like the jungle between Colombia and Panama, 66 miles. Wow. No, yeah. Jungle, so dangerous. People are so exposed. Like the journalist was following um, a couple families through the path, and like people get robbed at knife point, at gunpoint. It's also a passageway for drug traffickers. So wow. it's like super dangerous. You go through these rivers and these hills and you have to have a guide because you could be walking in a circle you know
5: oh Um, yeah
6: like they see skulls on the way human skulls like people don't make it
5: wow the Darien Gap
6: yeah
5: oh my god it's like watch it
6: in the morning oh don't watch it and I think I have a little bit of survivor's guilt like sometimes when you watch those things it's like oh That could have been anybody, you know, like how is it that way? Yeah,
1: that could have been us. Yeah. Could have been anybody, anybody. So what can people do to to help to stay informed?
6: So to stay informed, um, there's a lot of groups that are on the on the um, in Texas, you know, helping out the refugees helping them relocate getting them mm-hmm. their basic needs catholic charities is always a good starting point i think for immigration they do a really good job yeah. um, and they have branches all over and they take clothing they help people they give stipends for people to get settled
4: mm-hmm.
6: um, on my uh instagram i posted some good some good resources if you check out la cc
1: star yes in the stories you can you can yeah. find more information. Yeah. Uh oh, just ongoing ongoing saga. It's um just heartbreaking, but Haitian people are strong and these are people who you know just from what you described the of the Darien gap, these are people who uh, and there there were children on this journey too and babies and and mamas uh with their with their babies um they survived and they made it almost to texas and hopefully a, a lot of them have also made it into the states so just uh, absolutely resilient and strong people that deserve better um and uh you know we're just we're thinking about them
4: yes we
1: are. yeah yeah Okay, um so let's pivot. So inspired by the Netflix show on the Verge, I want you, Carla, because we both watched it, Julie Delpy. It's a wacky show. It's pretty good. what's how would you sum it up? how like what were your thoughts about it in like five words?
6: Oh, so um wacky. mm-hmm. Um real. Okay. I just think about like marriage crap. Okay. <laughs> um kooky, which I guess is the same as wacky.
4: Yeah.
1: It was, but it was both.
6: And it was very, you know, scenic. Because for the East Coast, it's nice to see like. Mm-hmm. I always like to see the wa- the weather, the vibe. It's very West Coast.
1: Yeah, super. Yeah, definitely very West Coast, very LA. Yeah.
6: Uh,
1: I like the show. Yeah, super wacky. Uh, she she does have a, a, a wacky sense of humor um, that's like dark. And um, I would love to have her on the show. Um, I did interview her years ago uh, when she did um, Two Days in New York. And have you watched that?
6: I rewatched it because you, you mentioned it and I was like, is that with Chris Rock? And I rewatched that.
1: That was but then uh, there's no, no, no not two days in New York. I talked to her for two days in Paris. But yeah, two days in New York is with Chris Rock.
6: What was the premise for two days in Paris?
1: So two days in Paris, um, and two days in New York. And is she York the same single. person? Yeah, oh, okay. she's so she's the same person in both movies. Two days in New York is Adam Goldberg. It's her is her boyfriend. She's bringing him basically to her hometown to like go hang out for two days. Okay, they have, have a, a layover that. in Paris, yeah. and um, it ends where they are visiting her parents and her parents are like super french and like even more wacky and the same dad same family yeah same dad i thought her dad died but it was her mom that actually in real life died but her mom is in two days in paris um which is amazing because the dad is just like um he probably does not drink water. He probably only drinks wine. Yeah. Uh, but he is still alive and kicking. I I think because he's also in, is that her biological dad. In, yeah. Oh. Yeah. He's he's an actor. Both his parents were her parents were actors. Uh, yeah. So he's also he makes a an appearance on on the verge also. But yeah, he's he's alive.
6: Oh, that's why she is so loving to him. She's like, even he's so cute about her dad. Yeah. Yeah
1: yeah so like yeah he's, he's fully alive mom mom is not which is like um she's the only child yeah and she's the only child yeah. um yeah so anyway uh in the spirit of on the verge and i i too i agree that i didn't like how um the black character was uh constructed uh it, it, it took clothes, a though. wild turn huh
6: I liked her clothes. I thought she was well styled. And it yeah, I thought gets- she
1: was well styled and she's a great actress. Uh and, and I liked the intention. I I like I like that these white writers are wanting to include a black character. Um that's not to say that like white writers shouldn't include black characters or or other other sorts of people, they should include all sorts of people, even though. I don't know, white people don't really hang out with other people. <laughs> but for the people that do hang out with other kinds of people, great. Uh, I, I think that that's, that's really good that she represents she, that.
6: She was like a supermodel that they met at a party. It was weird. It seemed that, like yeah.
1: that. Yeah, yeah, it seemed, yeah, back in 2000 or 2001 or whatever. Yeah, I there were some things I liked about it. But at the same time, yeah, with the black woman, I felt like they just didn't know what to do with her. So they made her a spy.
6: That was
1: so weird. (laughs) That was like first she had like
6: super anxiety. Like she can't let her child do anything. She's so anxious. But now she can be a spy. I was like, where'd her anxiety
1: go? Right. Her, yeah, the tone, like the tonal shifts in uh in the the first part of the show. Um totally changed in the latter half of the the series where she's a spy all of a sudden
4: because yeah, at first
1: she's good. like a nervous housewife and then and then all of a sudden she she's uh Carrie russell and the americans so yeah. yeah it was just like it was weird and then and then that was kind of disappointing too the the reveal as to why she's she was recruited again to be a spy
6: yeah i had to google if she was really iranian because she sounded like good she sounded i mean not that i know what an yeah. Iranian accent sounds like
1: she is though isn't she
6: so her in her wiki it's like she's half european they said or something like
1: oh that. yes yes she was spitting that farsi yeah real
6: good. her june was like on point
1: yeah yeah so yeah, yeah that was interesting um yeah, I yeah the the whole thing was super wacky. Julie Delpy was like, "Oh, you'll you would just be uh, you'll be black, but you will also be Persian. I think it would be great." How do you feel about that?
6: I
2: like anyway. her photo
1: shoot when
6: they did her photo shoot and she ended up split i don't know it was it was good it was cookie it was julie delphi but i love julie delphi
1: yeah I, I love her too i'm glad she got a show it definitely feels like it, it could be there could be a second series um, yeah if if that happens for her awesome please put me on staff um, to help you with the black character um but it, but it, or any character but uh, but yeah anyway i love her too um, OK, so inspired by the Netflix show On The Verge, I want you to guess who these women are who, quote unquote, made it after the age of 35. So for, you know, many women, the window of career opportunity seems to get narrower and narrower, narrower with yeah, age. Uh-huh. And so let's let's uh, I want I'm going to um, shoot off some um Some 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 questions, some some clues, some quotes. And you tell me who it is. So, okay, the first one, this woman didn't even learn to cook until she was 36. Oh, my goodness. Is she Alice Waters, Josephine Baker or Julia Child?
6: Julia Child.
1: Yes, it was Julia Child. She probably cooked, but like she just didn't get a show. Like, I I think
6: she was bored. In France and
1: she started to cook yeah because like wasn't her husband a spy yeah yeah her too right possibly yeah oh they should have had her on on the verge like a character like her or, yeah. or made the black woman like her I don't know anyway yeah. moving on uh number then the next one um in 1989, when this woman was 40 years old and planning her wedding, that uh, she, she entertained, she first entertained the idea of opening her own bridal boutique. And then after securing, ca- securing capital from her father, this rich. woman opened her first boutique at the Carlisle Hotel in New York City.
6: So this is a rich person, a rich boomer.
1: Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. And she now has boutiques all over the world. Is she Stella McCartney, Vera mm. Wang, or Donatella Versace? It has to be Vera Wang, because Stella can't be born in 49. Yes. And yeah. in, in 1989. Um. So, yeah, it was Vera yeah. Wang. So, yeah, Vera Wang got engaged when she well, was Oh, she's from 90. money. Huh? So, she's from yeah. money. Yeah, seems like it. Yeah. Yeah, because her father gave her the fronted her the cap and then your first
4: business is in the
6: carlisle
1: yeah yeah
6: not in clifton new jersey
1: i know i know or yeah or or like a kiosk yeah like on a yeah any, yeah yeah. Those, yeah anyway good for mm-hmm. you vera good
6: for you there you did good amazing
1: yes next question when the first season of Blank aired in 1951, this woman was 40 years old. Is she Mary Tyler Moore, B. Arthur, or Lucille Ball?
6: Lucille Ball.
1: Yes. Yeah. This is too easy. So by well, the Well, this 1950s- is my demographic. <laughs> I love like uh
6: uh empowered women or whatever you want to call it.
1: Yeah. Women, women on entrepreneurs, the verge. yeah,
6: women on the verge.
1: So by the 1940s, Lucille Ball still had not broken into starring roles that she wanted. Um, a lot of negotiations later, um, eventually Lucille became the first woman to head up a, a television production company, Desilu, yeah.
4: um,
1: which she and Desi Arnaz created to retain creative control over their hit show, I Love Lucy
6: you see how amazing you have to be as a woman to appear to like, after 35, like Vera Wang. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah Shauna Rhymes. Like, yeah. You, yeah, you really have to just uh, be amazing. Uh, okay, so next one. Who said this? I remember some nights where I was like, all right, this comedy shit just ain't working out. And not just when I was 25, Like when I was 45, I'm glad this whole success thing is happening now. I can't even imagine a 23-year-old blank in this position. She's talking about herself. Like she can't imagine herself at 23 in this position. Okay. So is it Lucy Liu, Leslie Jones, or Drew Barrymore?
6: Leslie Jones.
1: Yes. So yeah, those Leslie Jones. Um, Next one. At the age this is of, the best
6: I've ever done on a quiz on your show.
1: This is amazing. At the age of 39, this woman's first novel blank was published. Although critics embraced the powerful novel, it did not sell well, but it wouldn't be until the publication of her third novel blank that this woman would receive national attention and win the national book critics award. When she was thirty six, when she was forty six years old, is it Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, or Sally Rooney? Toni Morrison. Yes. She got an award, a books critic award. Yeah. So her third, her third novel, Song of Solomon. Um, oh, Toni Morrison. Okay. Yeah, Toni Morrison. That got her the uh, yeah. national attention.
6: Um.
1: Okay. She also, yeah. That makes sense. She
6: also what? I think she was a she was a journalist for a while.
1: Oh, she worked in book publishing.
6: Book publishing. Yeah, yeah. I just imagined her in the office. There was a really good uh like early pandemic. I remember watching a really good um documentary on her about her on Hulu. Oh wow. Yeah. I
1: wonder if it's still there. I, I would check it out.
6: Yeah, because her thing, like it was really good because she was talking about where she grew up in Ohio. Yeah. And um it was very diverse. And it was mm-hmm. interesting for the era, but one thing was like what critics couldn't get over with her was that she wrote novels about Black people without mentioning white people, like without the white yes. gaze, and that would drive them crazy. She's like, "No, but we have lives.
1: Like yeah. our whole
6: life isn't focused on being, you know, in the white gaze and stuff like that." I just thought-
1: especially during the the Black Lives Matter um, protests, like at the height of the the way well, we see the height of the pandemic, but it really is like the, I don't know. It was like it was the a dip. Thirst. Cause it was
6: summer. Right. Yeah.
1: But it was still, it was still like the uh, beginning, the beginning of it all because it's still yeah. going on. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't hit the denouement yet, I think. Uh, but, but yeah, I, uh, there were a lot of, um, stuff like on online, um, different interviews. Yeah. Just like you're saying, cause it was like a French woman that interviewed her. Oh yes.
6: Yes. Yes.
1: And, and she was like, are you asking John Grisham this? Are you yeah. asking, um, this person why it's only white men or white yes. people and their stories? Like yeah. this is, this is what I write. And then, and then Charlie, Charlie Rose asked her something stupid. And she was like, she was talking about racism and just uh and and white supremacy and just kind of like you know it's to make you feel good it's to make you feel better does it make you feel better to to think this way like I don't you know I don't I don't need to dwell on 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 racism and and the pain from that I'm I'm just gonna live my life yeah and 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 just like you said just uh yeah, portray the lives of Black people in an honest way, not not um, full of pain and and from, you know, not not having what white people have. So, is there anything that's making you happy these days? Um, joy.
6: My daughter did a bridge. That's fun.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was so cool to see her. I saw it today. That was yeah. awesome. That she's gave like, me that gave me joy too. Yeah,
6: she's like into stretching and doing stuff. So it's fun to see her doing something she likes. Uh-huh. Um, it's fall. I love fall. Uh-huh. It's like toasty and like you feel warm inside.
5: Uh-huh.
1: And it's, cuff- um, it's the start of cuffing season. Cuffing I guess. season.
6: Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and just you know happy everything's working and no pain. Yeah, just like inshallah. You know?
1: Inshallah. Yeah. All right. Well, inshallah, everyone. Um, thanks to my guest, uh Jean Thwarton. Um, thank you to Carla. Um, thank you to Ashley Shine in my sketch and to uh sean always uh who does the music and he was also in the sketch uh we'll see you next week i'm yummy coco keep your lamplight trimmed and burning (laughs) bye